0: Suncast is brought to you by Sungrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar
1: you know, I wonder how it is to do a startup and do something completely different. And it is totally different. It's different um, in the sense that when I was in investment banking, you talk with all the big corporates, you know, you talk to the GEs and, Mm -hmm. you know, the Honeywells and whatever. And and, and you try to shape the world and you think that you'll know how it works. And when you start a company, you realize that, you know, diddly squat. I mean, really. (laughs) This is SunCast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and action shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. SunCast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico
0: Johnson. Welcome, solar warriors, to episode 55 of SunCast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson, and I am so glad that you are back for another week of SunCast. I missed you guys earlier this week, didn't drop a Tactical Tuesday, got a few things in the works on that, but we'll be back in action on Tactical Tuesdays this coming week. Man, a lot happening in new projects in the US and Latin America, really had a blast going down to Chile last week, hanging out with my friends in Santiago at the Solar Plaza Asset Management Conference and learned a lot about what happens after these projects are installed. Man, Solar Plaza, you guys do a great job. Thank you for putting on another excellent event. Hey, did you see the latest Argentina Renovar 2.0 bids were received last week? The ministry received a total of 228 offers during the latest auction that it estimates will bring $11 billion in investment to the sector in wind, solar, biomass, biogas, small-scale, hydroelectric, landfill. They got 9.4 gigawatts. That's eight times greater than in the first auction. It's three and a half times get bigger than the second auction. Argentina is on fire. Maybe we'll have to do a special episode on Argentina. I think I'm going to tee that up here pretty soon. So much going on down in the Southern Cone. And with Chile's PMGD market heating up and the latest Mexico energy auction set to be held in November, there are going to be a ton more projects going into the ground. And all those projects mean assets that have to be managed. So today I thought I'd bring in an expert on asset management to better understand what exactly is happening once this plant is turned on and operating. You know, many of us don't really have a glimpse into this side of the PV plant as we're really focused on the upfront sales, marketing and installation aspect. But did you know that there are over 300 gigawatts in global assets under operation right now being managed? And one has to ask, who's handling all that data and contracts and compliance? Well, tune in today as we discuss this and more with today's guest, Ed May Kelsey, founder and CEO of 3 Megawatt. 3 Megawatt is the industry leader today in solar asset management software with 16 gigawatts of assets on their platform. So I sat down with Ed May to get a bit better insight into that topic, and I hope that you enjoy it. A quick reminder before we get into today to check out the webinar series 5 to 50, the secret formula to conversion, being hosted by Suncast Solar Lead Factory, and Solar Edge. This is a webinar that's number two of three, building on something we presented to begin with, October 13th, all about lead generation. If you're interested in tips on how to prepare for massive growth in your solar business, just go to mysuncast.com forward slash webinar, where you can register for the upcoming webinar happening Friday, November 3rd. That's next Friday if you're listening to this as it's been released. This episode is brought to you in partnership with SolRates.com, the fast and free online platform for providing your commercial customers with a credible lease financing proposal. Perhaps you read about it in Solar Builder, perhaps you even met Dustin, the CEO at SPI. If you have projects in the commercial space that are over $100,000 in value and you'd like SolRates to help you quickly and easily deliver a financing proposal and get your customers qualified for financing, then head over to mysuncast.com forward slash and click on the request and invitation button. And hey, thanks again for taking this time out of your busy schedule to be with us. Hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Suncast with Edme Kelsey. A couple of months ago, I put the call out that I was looking for more female leaders to have on Suncast, and today's guest came highly recommended. Edme Kelsey brings a wealth of solar asset management domain expertise to her role as founder and CEO at 3 Megawatt, an asset management company whose BluePoint software platform is currently used to manage over 16 gigawatts of solar assets worldwide. May began her career as a technology and investment banker, but has some serious startup and C-suite shops. Working at notable companies like Axio Power and Alison Edison and AES. She's also fluent in six languages. Really excited to have yet another female power executive on the show. Edme, bienvenido a Suncast. <laughs>
1: Thanks, Nico. Thanks for having me.
0: <laughs> You're welcome. Absolutely. It is totally a pleasure, and I'm really I've been looking forward to this conversation mate you've got a background in finance and M&A, and you've worked really all over the world. Tell me about your first exposure to solar power and how you decided or when you knew that it was where you want to focus your career.
1: Well, you know, I was living in California at the time. And uh, when I first got in touch with solar, this was back in 2007, and, you know, California as being one of the first solar states, it was very hard to escape. And I remember going to one of the, I think it was the first or maybe the last, I don't know, um, SBI in San Diego. And it, it was a great atmosphere. And I go, you know what, these are really cool people. They're all super passionate about what they're doing. I, I'd love to find out more about it. And at the time I was working as a managing director for a clean tech m and boutique in San Diego. And I came across um, these guys who were like a small utility scale developer in Southern California. And they said to me, they said, you know what, um, we're doing all these cool utility scale projects, but to finance them is really, really hard because, you know, we need a lot of money for interconnect and, and we don't know where, where to get it from. Can you help us? And I remember I was speaking to my uh, MD at the time at, um, at this small investment bank, and he said, oh, no, solar, that's kind of not so cool, um, you know, because uh, we have to do other things. <laughs> and that's when I decided that maybe it was time to go and, and join this team of, um, you know, very passionate people who believed in putting solar on the stage. That team was actually Axio Power. Um, yeah. And that was Kevin and Tim. It was Kevin and Tim. And I loved it right from the start. I remember going to work uh, early in the morning and it was like almost like a cottage um, office we had with a white picket fence. And when I got in, in the morning, there were all these wetsuits drying over the white picket fence and there was Tim's dog running out to greet every every new employee. I was, you know, (laughs) special. And I'll never forget that. I think it was one of my nicest work experiences ever. A fantastic team, super smart, and really, you know, passionate about you know, making solar work and trying to figure out how.
0: What took you to San Diego from the Netherlands? As I recall, is where you're from, correct? <laughs>
1: Oh, that's a very long story. I I think an (laughs) hour is not enough. (laughs) Uh,
0: Quite all right. Well, is there a short answer? I know that you had, uh, well, you were in the telecom industry and then sort of found your way over to the U.S. uh, after that. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I'd been in, in the U.S. before. I've been working on Wall Street, and then I wor- worked in London. I worked in in France, and I'd never do that again. Mm-hmm. Um, although France is a beautiful country, but it's hard to work there. Um and I've been in telecom and to in many respects, um, there's a German expression that says, I've seen this movie before, mm. right? So what happened in telecom in the early days of deregulation, where the utilities were faced with all these upstarts also trying to get consumer relationships and, and B2B relationships with people buying their services, we, we see the same thing now. It's, it's not very different i mean it is different but it isn't um so there are a lot of lessons that that we learned then um, that can be applied to to where we are today because at the end of the day it's a utility service right whether it's it is, it's yeah. energy or it's it's um you know voice minutes or mm, internet bandwidth I mean it's not that different
0: yeah well I wanted to ask a bit about about your transition from i mean you were you were at major equities firms right at major banks, investment banks as vice president of M&A and working on M&A quite deeply living in London working on a lot of uh, different transactions at scale you saw this transition in telecom and you switched from basically an, an, an investment banking career to a telecom startup how did that feel going from the world of investment banking to starting a company in a new in a new sector or maybe not a news so new to you but but jumping in coming out of investment banking to running your own thing
1: um, but it was very different um, I think that you know I'm I, I like new challenges and I, I you know, my previous boss said that I have maybe too much intellectual curiosity, whatever that means. <laughs> but after a while in investment banking, you're like, well, you know, I wonder how it is to do a startup and do something completely different. And it is totally different. It's different, um, in the sense that when I was in investment banking you talk with all the big corporates, you know, you talk to the GE's and the mm-hmm. you know, the Honeywells and whatever, and and, and and you try to shape the world and you think that you all know how it works and when you start a company you realize that you know diddly squat. I mean, really, <laughs> um, you basically uh, realize that um, you know to look at business models from an analytical perspective is very different than actually um, taking that business model and, and putting it into practice. The execution is a completely different ballgame. So, but I thought that was fascinating and, and I, I learned an incredible amount uh, in that time. Actually, I, I'm still. Learning a lot every day, I learn a lot, um, which which I like. Um, that's what you know. But, but keeps me you know gets me out of bed every morning. I suppose.
0: So you've gone from obviously having the first successful, we'll call it your startup, when you left the the nest and went out on your own, had the successful startup uh, that was acquired, then went back out and as a consultant, eventually worked your way into the solar industry. And now I've started your own company again. You're the CEO and founder of 3 Megawatt. What do you utilize now day to day or that you kind of teach your your team or I'd say maybe lessons or pillars of experience from that 10 years foray away from investment banking now four or five companies later? How does that learning influence your work at 3 Megawatt today, which is now your baby?
1: Oof, where to start? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah i think that um when you're in your second or third startup i mean a startup the the guys talk about solar coaster right but a a startup is a huge roller coaster even worse than the solar coaster i mean it's like you know one day it's fantastic because you need got a new client and then the next day something happens you go like oh how am i gonna solve this and i think when you have your first startup you take it very personal, and um, I think when you do it over and over again, you realize that this is just a normal flux. That there is going to be this oscillation of waves, it's going to be up and down and up and down, and at the end, the waves are just going to go, you know, less in magnitude or amplitude, I should say. <laughs> it's just part of the game, and you know it's going to go down and it's going to go up, and um, you take a little bit of distance from it, whereas if you do it for the first time, um, it can be sometimes extremely demoralizing, because you go <laughs> like, oh, how am I going to survive this blow now? Right. And and now you kind of know, well, you yeah, know, I don't know how today I'm going <laughs> to deal with it, but I know when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll figure out a way, and yeah. and, and, and that's how it is.
0: Can you contrast building your first team at, uh, at Switch Tracks to building the three megawatt team in terms of not just your uh, your your philosophy on how to build the team, but where do you start? What are the key roles, or how do you think about empowerment as you build a team as an executive?
1: Oh, I think the two are completely um, different. I think. At- one of the differences was that switch tracks i started almost right away with venture capital um, meaning that i had a lot of money to spend so i got executives with a lot of experience that i thought would help me um in the team um whereas a three megawatt I started almost from the garage and mm. uh, the the finances come through our clients who've helped us grow. So I organically added more and more people over time and um, perhaps it took a little bit longer to get my trust um, to really um, empower people where... Um, you know, initially I thought I'm, I'm paying a lot of money for these people. They're supposed to do their job and and some worked out great and others didn't work out so well. Um, so it, it has taught me that um, I think, and I've read that in books afterwards, um, I mean, it sounds horrible, like higher hire, hire slow and fire fast is yeah. what they're saying. But I think it's true. Um, it, If you hire too fast and you spend a lot of time with the person, training them, getting them up the curve, and then they don't work out, you lost more time than taking a little bit more time to make sure that you do the right hiring decision. And, um, you know, that's, I think, advice that I had to learn the hard way. Um, But yeah, that's uh, it's really... Useful advice that yeah. I wish I'd known earlier.
0: I, I appreciate that. One of my uh, one of my mentors and coaches said that he's been a CEO of a number of tech startups, and he's also now sort of helped found and mentor other startups. And his advice to us, which we were, it was a a management team doing hiring of a startup that I was advising, uh, and there were there were a few folks <laughs> on the team that, frankly, we had given a couple of chances, or sort of we were still holding that hope. And his advice very clearly was, look, what does your gut say if your gut says that, you know, he basically said, I've never had an example where my intuition, my gut said to let this person go. And they came back and surprised me. Is that true to your experience as well?
1: Well, it's easier said than done, right? Because you made a decision, you trained somebody, and in a way you don't want to admit defeat. And so it's almost also that you feel bad because you made a judgment error, right? Someone said to me, and I don't know who it was, but that was an extremely useful piece of advice. They said, my wife tells me that if I bring my problems home for a month about a certain person, um, that actually the wife said, after a month, I'm going to tell you. And I'm going to tell you, you've been talking about this person for a month and complaining. And that's probably when you have to make a decision, right? Because occasionally something will happen, and you take something home which you shouldn't, and say, you know, right. this person, whatever. But if it's if it's consistent for a month, not so good. Right, yeah. and I, I think that that that's been interesting advice that I will now follow and see <laughs> if that's uh, and it comes back to the gut to the to the gut feel, right? If you kind of know, but sometimes maybe the people around you that you know best have to tell you. You're like, well, yeah, every day you come home and you complain about so and so, you know.
0: Yeah, I think that's what it is. that's maybe the rip- you should it's do that, something. It's that thing, as you said, it's the gut feel compared with the ego and a lot of a lot what what I think my mentor was saying is look you can't let your ego drive this your intuition will tell you if there's a problem and it's basically a question of where are you going to spend your time and effort trying to rehabilitate this this relationship and and recoup your investment or Making a clean cut and and, and moving on. Well, Ed May, I, I appreciate right. yeah, I appreciate your. I mean, you've got vast insight into this because you've done this a number of times, not just for your own startups but for other companies. One of the things that uh, I think bears uh, fleshing out, given that I've had so few and and it's frankly not that easy to find female uh, leaders at the top of the solar industry. Uh, thankfully, it, we're we're seeing an increase in that, but. You know one of the things from your perspective is you're more on the uh on the finance and ops side of the business and i just don't see a whole lot of female leaders in the in the operations side of the business and certainly i mean solar asset management may not be considered a very sexy element of the of the business but it's kind of a core function of actually what drives revenue once the projects are, are bought and sold bought and sold uh, but why do you suppose it is that there first first off, why do you suppose it is that there aren't a whole lot uh, of females who are rising through the ranks presently? Uh, what could we do about that? And then, how, how has that been a challenge in terms of your career growing into the solar industry out of out of uh, investment banking, where there are where there are a lot more uh, female leaders present?
1: I wish I knew, Um, you know, when I was in investment banking, there weren't many females either. And I was when I was studying business studies, we were only 25%. And quite frankly, I don't understand why that is. Um, You know, maybe it's a question of interest. Um, And I wish that I could hire more females. And, you know, I always try to figure out, like, where can I post job adverts? Because I'd like to have like a balanced workforce. And um, I, I don't know why it's so hard. Mm. Why, why females think perhaps that solar is scary, um, maybe because they think you have to be technical, that you have to be a physicist to understand how solar works. Um, but we all know that that's not what it's about. So I, I'm not really sure. I wish I wish somebody could tell me uh, why that is, because yeah. I'd really like to know. Having said that, In solar asset management, actually, I discovered something really interesting, because I started looking at our user base, the people who use our software, and I discovered that more and more users are female, as I would even argue that probably a majority at the moment is female, and that may be surprising people, but if you think... About the characteristics, if you had to put a job ad together and you go like, "I'm looking for a solar asset manager," what does this person have to have in terms of, you know, personal abilities to be able to be good at their job? You would say they have to be detailed oriented, they have to be persistent, they have to be communicative, they have to be, um, you know, getting getting stuff done um, accurate. Um, reliable there are a lot of sort of characteristics of what a an ideal solar asset manager should be that you know a lot of females I hate to say that but are are like that are very yeah, embodied, detailed because, are yeah. oriented are. Right. And so I think that what we find is that, um, that, that women that come into the business, that they come from somewhere else, right? Um, as, as everybody coming into solar, as the industry grows, um, they have done this somewhere else, you know, maybe they were in real estate, maybe they were in something else, and they tend to be accomplished lawyers, they tend to be very good controllers, accountants, paralegals, Uh, you just, you know, women getting stuff done. And um, I see more and more of these that I have an incredible amount of admiration for, because um, they do extremely well. They just, you know come into an extremely unstructured environment where documents are all over the place. Nobody can find them. Nobody knows what's going on. And they go like, "Okay, let's put a process to this. Let's figure this out. And they just get it done. And um, so I think when you say there are not many, uh, what I've noticed, particularly in the last uh, three years, that there are a lot coming into that industry, and they're extremely good at it. Maybe not so in much in the technical side, you know and 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 having said that, we also um, see very talented engineers, but just you know women coming in from other professions and doing very, very well.
0: I love it. Hey, three megawatt is uh, focused on the asset management side of the business as we've mentioned. I'd love to hear from your perspective, and you, I me. Mean, you're arguably one of the best at doing what you do, right? 16 gigawatts under under management. What opportunities and threats do you currently see in this space? Well, I think our industry is still extremely young, right?
1: So I started five years ago, and I started out of a need because, as a CFO at Main Street Power, uh, we had a very small team. And we had, I don't know how many loan agreements and we had to do how many reports for uh, equity sponsors, um, PPA invoices. And I was looking for a, a software solution to make my life easier, couldn't find anything. And I go, well, you know, um, if we need it, they're going to be other mm. ones. But actually, five years ago, there weren't that many other ones just because there weren't that many People out there that were building a distributed portfolio. I mean, sure, you had the guys on the Resi side, but on the CNI side, I remember there was Tayoga and there was Solar City. There weren't that many, but they're like, you know, it's going to come, and slowly it came, but mm. very slowly, slowly. And so, you know, fast forward five years later, I think we're finally at a point where people now have a portfolio, where they're going, how am I going to do gonna this? this right? um, how am I going to manage this? And the industry has changed so much in five years, where five years ago I said to people, hey, you know, I'm, we're doing solar asset management software. And they go like, oh, you're a monitoring company. Right. And they go, no, 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 we we do asset. And they go, oh, well, why would I need that? And now they're going, like, well, I need this. I need this, but you know what? It's not super urgent because I can still get by, you know, I have my Excel spreadsheets, I have my Outlook and I have my this and that. And I think the way when you say opportunities and threats, the market is still very young and people are still trying to figure stuff out and it will take a while and 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 it's almost immediately correlated to the growth of the industry where when i started maybe we were like 100 megawatt max now a gigawatt sorry now we're at 300 um we're gonna double in what three years or who knows and the other difference is that when five years ago at the hundred gigawatts a lot of it was fragmented right it's like um a lot of it was in Germany, and uh, about thirty gigawatts. Half of that was people putting solar on farms. They don't they don't need software, um, but today most of the solar that's being installed is owned by professionals, by professional right. funds, and they need. Um, a tool to be able to um, satisfy their stakeholders because maybe they have a pension fund that's behind them. Maybe they're publicly quoted. Maybe they have SOX compliance. So um, it is something that is is slowly emerging. When you say opportunities and threats, I mean, we have had um, clients go out of mm-hmm. business, you know, and, and, and the, it won't be the last ones. Um, there will yeah. be more. Um, we had people change business model that they thought they were going to do asset management, and they're like, well, you know, there's actually not as much money in this as we thought. Maybe we're going to do O and M, and then they decide that they're not going to do it after all. Um, we had asset managers that got acquired, and then decided that they were going to do technical advisory instead. So. I think that's just how it is. This industry, people are still morphing and they're still trying to find their identity. And and, and that's a threat. But at the same time, it's an opportunity too because you don't know where these people are going to show up. You don't know what they're going to do. You you have to figure out what's the next thing that they're going to be working on to figure out what the next opportunity is. Because I think there's one thing certain that if you were to take a... Polaroid, you know, to use an old fashioned term of the industry today, and you would look at it in three years' time, I bet you that it's almost unrecognizable. I think that's our industry. It's changing so, so fast. And that's an opportunity and it's a threat, depending on who you are and how you perceive it.
0: Edmay, what segment of the market is three megawatt serving or focused on right now? Uh, mainly utility scale. I mean, I'd love to do
1: CNI, but it turns out that a lot of our clients have utility scale plans. Um, and you know, the two are similar, but very different. Uh, we don't do any resi having said that some people have small resi portfolios that they use our software to manage, but it's, it's mainly CNI and utility scale. Yeah.
0: What, uh, So I'm curious about two things. What percentage of your portfolio, that 16 gigawatts is DG?
1: So the 16 gigawatts is renewables, right? Out of that is 10 is is Uh, solar, six is wind. And I would think DG, you know what? I've never looked at the numbers, but I would think 90% is utility scale. 10 is DG in terms of gigawatts, in terms of number of sites. It's very different, obviously.
0: Sure. Yeah, sure. Well, what do you think is, I mean, you you were, you were managed over a hundred uh, uh, independent assets at AES and probably you, you've had insight into many more than that. What do you think presently is holding distributed generation back from your pur- purview of, of sort of waiting for it to be deployed so you can actually help manage it?
1: Well, the, the, it's economic. You know, it's really hard to make money in CNI and you kind of have to, I don't want to say cut corners because that sounds very harsh, but um, there are just fewer things that you can do um, with C&I as with utilities, just because the budget for, in, in in a financial model, in the utility scale is, is is better. You can do more. To give you an example, um, if you need, if you say you had two SPVs, and, and one have maybe 10 schools in it, and one another one has one utility scale plant in there. The work that you need to do for the utility scale for the SPV is the same as, you know, maybe t- you have to do a tenfold for your your other SPV that has 10 different PPAs in it. So right. I think that's one of the challenges is the work is the same, but the megawatts are, are, are way more. And so people are asking mm-hmm. us, like, where is this relationship between megawatts and and, and our work? You know, and that's something that is really hard to put into into words. When people ask, for instance, for um, a quote for a monitoring system, they totally accept that it's linked to the megawatts and they go, well, you know, if it's a bigger plant, then it probably has a lot more sensors, a lot more inverters, has a lot more weather stations, so there's a lot more data. There's a lot more data points. I have to pay more. If you're looking right. at the utility versus CNI and you issue a PPA uh, invoice, it's the same amount of work. And uh, people will say, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing an invoice. Why would I have to pay 10 times as much for an invoice for utility skill PPA as I do for a CNI PPA, whether it's the same process? I don't get it. Right. And, and that's really hard to explain because um, they're absolutely right. There's just more money in utility scale than in CNI. CNI is everything is so tight that in order to be successful at CNI, you have to be super, super organized. and And if you don't do that, you're gonna have a hard time.
0: Hmm. Very, very wise insight. I appreciate that. Hey, Ed May, You know, one of the things that I just don't understand about your business is, uh, you know, I I know companies like QOS and green power monitor you know even draker and some of the more well-known names here in the us that provide monitoring services and you mentioned uh, earlier that it's not a monitoring business so to speak what is asset management in the sense of like how you interact with some of these players that i might consider that were that are uh competitors to you
1: well, that's an excellent question because um, if you look at anybody's website, everybody does asset management. You know, whether it be Green Power Monitor or QOS or also Energy, and 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 so people say, well, you're all doing the same, um, but it really depends on. Uh, on the different, you know, what aspect of asset management is it? Technical asset management, uh, or is it commercial asset management? Or in the states, they sometimes say, is it white collar or blue collar? Which I, I don't really mm. like that much. Um, that <laughs> the, that analogy. But really, when you if you're a technical asset manager, your main job is to look at the performance of the plant and to figure out. Um, how can I optimize it? How to, can I make it run better? How can I uh, make sure that you know the sun is never going to shine more? How can I get more kilowatt hours out of it? But that's just part of the equation, because mm-hmm. your project comes with a lot of project documents and a lot of things that you need to do. You know, if you don't pay the bank uh, their loan back, they're going to be super unhappy and they're going to put <laughs> you <laughs> in the fold, to right? Say, to <laughs> say the least. <laughs> to say the least. And so there are certain things that you have to do, and if you don't do that, you know you could lose the entire investment of your solar project. There's, if- o-
0: there's there's ongoing checks and balances, right after COD. I mean, you had mentioned actually, and I remember now in a conversation about something about filing the right documents to keep your permits in place. Right. I mean, you know, you have to do your desert turtle study every two years. And
1: if you don't do that, technically they could take your permit away. If you have certain ground erosion problems and you don't mention it in time to the municipality, you know, there's a whole host of things that are, you know, what we call permit compliance. If you don't do that, they, they, you know, things can get pretty nasty. So, And um, and my
0: monitoring, my monitoring solution from Green Power Monitor won't tell me that this is what's happening. And so. If I could summarize that, what you and Radian and PowerHub and others like you are doing is providing the financial or the, you know, the commercial management, as you said, by ensuring that you're compliant, that you are, uh, that you're managing all of the, basically the paperwork that has to go back and forth, not just the bits and bytes. And the technical management is handled by a monitoring software like those that we've mentioned here. Is that, that's a, that's a, that's my best summary. Is that accurate?
1: That's a pretty good summary. I think that what I would add to that is that when I look at our software solution, I would say it is helping with business processes, meaning that, you know, you put something in, you put a kilowatt in, and at the end of the day, you get a, a dollar out, hopefully, and um, and, uh, you know, whatever it requires, whether it means that you have to um, register your renewable energy certificates, uh, whether it means that you're solving a problem with a landlord. Mm-hmm. And the only way that you can do that is if you have a holistic view of your, of your project. And the technical information is part of it, and it's an important part. But, you know, maybe sometimes you don't have uh, weather data, maybe you take that from somewhere else, maybe you have satellite data, maybe you need data from um, from uh, meters that you don't have access to from utility meters, maybe market rates from an exchange. So. What I look at our software doing is taking information from all these different silos, you know, a silo of monitoring data, a silo of market data, a silo of an accounting system, a silo of maybe a document management system, and, and gluing it all together so that y- the user is empowered to making important decisions about about their project and um, and not missing anything, not having anything fall between the cracks.
0: Very good. All right. Ed May, we're going to move on to a section I call hot or not. I'll uh, and We may even call it hotter hype moving forward, as Pam Cargill suggested. But I will name a specific market or topic, and you can spend 30 to 60 seconds on whether you think it's hot or not, and maybe a quick answer on, on why drilling down. And we'll start with, uh, I'm going to broad base uh, by saying, Suncast originally started as a podcast focused on the Latin American market, so I want to make sure that we're continuing to provide a little bit of a lens into Latin America, I expect that 3 megawatt has some customers who are operating out uh, in, in multiple markets, perhaps not Latin America yet, but I'll leave that to you to answer. So we'll start in Hot or Not with Latin America as a whole, and then if there are any specific markets underneath that that you think are hot or overhyped, love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, so we do have customers that have sites in um, in Latin America, and we're looking at the Latin America market. And I think it's still very early days. You know, it's almost perhaps where the states was three years ago. Um, you have a lot of developers running around doing doing deals, um, but from our perspective for solar asset management, you know, we only kick in if you have operational assets. So I think it is still. Um, early days. uh, I see the market maturing. Um, You know, Chile, we will always have our eye on Mexico. We think Mexico is potentially a very attractive market. But figure, uh, we've heard that, you know, people are still figuring things out waiting for regulations, uh, which is holding the market back a bit. Um, So I think Latin America is going to be an important market. But I think we have to wait a bit uh, for it to materialize, Latency.
0: Yes. got it, got it. Well, actually, it may it it brings a question for me from a product or a vendor perspective. When do you get brought into the conversation around uh around sort of acquiring uh license to your software? I suppose is what the conversation is like. How soon? How early in the development cycle are you aware of a project, or are you uh, courting potential customers?
1: I think there are two extremes. On um, one hand, we have the guys that go like, "Oh, we came from, whatever. We're this team. We just raised like a hundred million, um, and we're going to deploy it to do, you know, whatever this specific asset class in that specific, mm-hmm. you know, country or state or whatever. This is our spin." And we want to do it right from the get-go. This is what we want to do. And we know that we need a professional software tool to do that. We like to work with you. Great. Um, That's one extreme. Um, The other extreme is people that have been, you know, using Outlook, Excel, whatever. And they finally get to the point where they can't do it anymore. Their Excel tool is just blown up. The person that was responsible for asset management just left. Everything is a total mess, and they throw their hands in the air and go like, "Okay, this doesn't work anymore." I think those are the two areas where we're most successful. What is really difficult is to talk to somebody who perhaps has ten projects, and is going to acquire another three or build another three in the next three in the next year they're still getting by there is no burning fires unless you know their equity sponsor gives them a hard time they go like well why should i spend money on something that i'm not really seeing the benefits for yeah
0: that brings another question what's the typical uh, portfolio size or number of projects before someone really looks at asset management as a as a tool Really interesting question, because
1: I think almost it doesn't have to do anything with size, I would say it would have to do with complexity, right? So if you have um, and we're looking at the different markets over the world and we grade them in complexity, complexity meaning a market where, you know, on one hand you have Germany where, um, you know, your loan agreement is four pages and your credit uh, or your, your loan compliance is consists of having coffee with your banker once a year and saying, everything's fine. You know, insurance you can buy off the shelf. It's fine. You don't have a PPA. You have a feed-in tariff 20 years stable to the other extreme to markets where you have like, we call it, uh, you know, uh, uh, a revenue layer cake of maybe you have PPA, maybe you have green certificates, you have uh, renewable energy certificates, maybe you have uh, you selling into the frequency regulation market. Um, you have extremely complicated lease agreements, maybe some are variable, some are fixed. So. To answer your question, does it have to do with size? No. I think if you have five different projects and they're extremely complex, um, they're way harder to manage than 20 that are cookie cutter identical.
0: Got it. And does that uh, lend itself well as, I mean, in terms of the way you've developed Bluepoint as a software platform, are you ideally uh, oriented towards those more complex markets and thus it sort of winnows the field for you or do you kind of service a broader base
1: oh we love complexity the more the better (laughs) because the complexer it is the more people need our software because just it comes to a point where you know excel and other tools just don't work anymore so complexity is good
0: yeah, complexity is good. Absolutely. Well, as and, and as well as more generation and or storage um, assets are added and, and DERs are uh, added to the mix, uh, things get even more complex. So moving back into the hot or not topics, let's go to our next topic, DG or distributed generation energy storage and whether you think that's hot or not.
1: I think it's hottish in the sense that uh, we know a lot of people are looking at it. We know a lot of people want to deploy it. Uh, utility scale, maybe, you know, end 2018, 19. Um, people don't really know if the pricing is going to work. They are pricing the forward curve, which is dangerous um, you know maybe it works maybe it doesn't um, if it works it's going to be great for us again complexity it's all good um, mm-hmm. but it's it's hot but i think but there, there hasn't been sort of the, uh, the the business model where people say this is fantastic and then i'm not going to scale it and then i'm going to do it on all my projects people are still right. running trials and seeing how it works um but, but yet i think it's yeah fairly hot
0: very good. Well, let's look at the nexus between renewables and the electrification of the automobile industry. Hot or not?
1: Oh, I think it's it's really hot. And I, I, I think it's hot more because I see a lot of potential in it. Again, I think it's a bit long term mm-hmm. um, just because uh, we have a long way to go. I mean, I live in Germany and it's pretty Pretty sad what we have going on here. I mean, it's very little electric cars, and um, I know that particularly the countries that do not have a car industry, like Norway or Holland, uh, has said we're going to go completely electric by 2020. Mm-hmm. And I would expect those countries to take a big leap in in figuring out business models um, where you see the merge between, you know, the battery on wheels as I. Would Call it, and um, and the electricity generation and other countries um, are just going to take, particularly those that have a vested car industry. And I'm trying to be politically correct in the way I'm saying it. They're going to take a sure. going to take a lot a, a lot longer. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, how does someone uh, with a platform that manages assets con- conceptualize sort of serving beyond renewables? the electricity markets right so I am thinking about Norway or uh, or yeah, I'm thinking about an entrepreneur who might deploy uh, a thousand car chargers across Norway and also you know pro- also has solar assets and other things like but they but they look at it as an asset that's providing generation capacity or providing perhaps storage capacity locally is is that something that you see as an opportunity for your platform? Is it something that's on the radar with regards to as I mentioned, this Nexus?
1: Well I think that a lot of the opportunities that we're currently seeing is still is is what I call B2C. Or um, you know, it, it's residential. Um, maybe, but I love the ideas where people are you know using the school bus as a battery on wheels and saying, well, it runs for a certain very foreseeable time, so I know when to charge it and I know when it's going to be discharged, and and build business model around that. Um, I don't think it's going to be for mm-hmm. us because it is, you know, we're not focused on residential. And when we're looking at storage, it's more like we're looking at uh, grid-connected storage. Um, maybe we're yeah. looking at microgrids where cars perhaps play a lesser role than other types of storage devices. Uh, but yet, I think it's it's a fascinating area, and just you know, out of personal interest, I I, um, I love reading articles about it, and, and, and you know figuring out what people could do in the future. I think there's going to be a lot of very exciting business models around that.
0: Well, perhaps the next uh, point uh, or the next uh, topic is uh, close to home. And I might guess your answer, but what the heck, we'll throw it out there. Software platforms focus on the solar space, hot or not?
1: (laughs) Super hot, of course. What do you think? (laughs) Nico, (laughs) come on.
0: (laughs) 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 <laughs> uh, but, but why? Maybe maybe we'll drill down. Where are people focused or where are the opportunities that are not being focused on or, or what's being overhyped as maybe an area where software can solve problems that, it, that it's not or, or whatever? That's, I guess that's what I'm getting at.
1: Well, I think we all can agree on one thing. Whoever you ask in the industry is power prices, PPA prices are going to go further down. Right. And so if the prices are going to go further down, the whole value chain has to figure out a way to deal with it, meaning investors have to take lower IRRs, you know, panel manufacturers maybe have to take a lower margin and asset managers and O&M service providers have to be more efficient. And that's where I think software can play a role where we can actually help the value chain, you know, in reducing costs so that people can offer even lower PPA prices to be competitive with fossil fuel, because that's the end game. So yes, that's why I think that we as software providers can play a big role in, in making renewable energy more competitive. Hmm. Ed May, what
0: position do you hold either personally or about the industry that is controversial?
1: Phew, <laughs> where do I start? <laughs> Um, Well, one thing that I've never understood, and I know it's a bit controversial, um, and it is about the US market, is I never understood why people, corporates, would be willing to enter into a long-term PPA at a fixed rate or even a fixed rate with an escalator. I don't get that. Why would you put your head on the line and say, I believe that when I lock myself into a 20-year PPA, that this is a fair price? How would I know? Why would I take exposure on power prices? How do I know where the power prices are in 20 years? So then people respond, they're like, yeah, but you know what? If I don't have a fixed rate PPA, I can't get it financed. And I would go back to the developer as a corporate and I would say, that's not my problem. You know, you hmm. figure it out. you know, you figure out some kind of maybe, you know, fixed to floating swap or whatever to make it work because I don't want to lock myself into a fixed power price. because you know what? five years down the line when the power prices are even lower and I locked in at today's rate, everybody will look at me and go like, "What did you do, Frank, or whatever your name is? because yeah. why w- why did you do that?" But, you know, um, I think it's pretty controversial because a long-term PPA is something, you know, the way the U.S. market works right now. But between you and me, I I don't think that's going to hold much longer. I think if the corporates, uh, the corporate PPAs are, um, you know, getting more bargaining power, I I wouldn't be surprised if there are going to be other business models and, you know, with a more floating rate aspect to it
0: very interesting i love that uh that is a, that is a bit of a controversial although uh not terribly underappreciated perspective certainly for those of us who have operated outside of the u.s and other markets i mean in latin america corporates are asking the same question but the the, the problem is in you know you can't get these deals financed in latin america unless they have a 10 uh, or a 10 or more long year tenor but with the corporate folks say hey this is in the United States. If Prices drop below what my contract is with you. I'm gonna just stop paying you, right? <laughs> and they and you can come sue me in my home country or sue me in London and see how that works out for you. Um, unless you have a deal, uh, unless you have a deal directly with one of the uh, with one of the state-run energy agencies, which has its whole other, whole other ball of wax, right? Right. Um, yeah, I think I think it has a lot to do with the United States uh, legal system <laughs> being able to protect these 20-year contracts and keep them intact once you've signed the dotted line?
1: Yeah, maybe, but I think as an industry... Again, our our eyes should be on the ball, and it's fossil fuels, right? <laughs> Those are the guys who want to beat, and so we have to figure out how to get to more market dynamics and to have more floating rate right, pricing because that's how they work, and we don't want to give them an advantage because they can and we can't. We just have to um, figure out the right mechanisms behind it. You know, maybe there are already a lot of people out there in other markets that are maybe selling half of their energy. So they do, they have a facility and half of it they're selling, uh, you know, long rate fix and half of it they're trading spot. I think that will be just something that will come more and more and more where, um, you know, as in any other commodity market, we decide whether we sell spot or we sell, you know, a long-term contract and, that's
0: just where we're, go- where we're headed. Um, totally agree. Just like normal, just like other generation assets, you right. mean? Yeah.
1: For example.
0: <laughs> what, a, what a concept. Right. That's is. I mean, this is, this is actual real world math in Chile and Brazil, in Panama in Colombia right, right now, this is not stuff that's theoretical. This is actual real world math in Mexico as we're coming out of the auctions and folks have assets that they want to turn on, can turn on, but that didn't win as a part of the auction, but could potentially down the road. So I like the way you're thinking here, Edme. You You know, you warn that asset management is a road full of dangerous twists and turns, you once wrote. Like what? What do you mean there?
1: Well, uh, as I said, it's a very early market, and um, we see a lot of new people getting into the industry. We also see um, people that were in there for their er- in the early days leave, which is... A big mm-hmm. surprise to me but there are for instance uh, a number of pension funds in Germany that have been like crucial to the early days of solar and they were buying like large portfolios and now they're saying like well you know I, I, I have a nice portfolio I have a great IRR I have like great country risk and um, if I want to grow, I either have to go into a country where I have to take a country risk that I don't feel comfortable with or that I don't get compensated in, in terms of IRR. Um, or maybe I go into another country that I'm not allowed to go into because I'm a pension fund and I need to do this asset liability ma- matching and maybe I don't have any liabilities in that um, in that country so they can't invest. So I think we're seeing some of the early day guys like Well, you know, I have what I have. It's good, but no more. And we see a whole lot of new people um, come in and, um, and trying to figure this out and doing it a different way, um, which is great. Um, but everybody is new to it, right? It's like uh, yeah, yeah. the market is only five years old, I guess, for solar yeah. asset management. So the advice I can give to people is that Um, whichever way it is today. And people talk about the solar coaster. I actually don't like the term solar coaster that much um, because a coaster applies that it goes up. (laughs) I think it will just (laughs) go down, 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 (laughs) right? And you just have to be ready for this, that it's going to go further down, further down, and you have to find a way to make it work. And there's a lot of... A lot of smart people and every time something you know unforeseen comes up they find a way around it and i think that's just the way it is um so that's why it's it's a path of i don't know what i said the treacherous turns um
0: yeah the dangerous twists and turns right? yeah yeah i think i just had a vision of a t-shirt that shows uh, a, a roller coaster on a downward slope that just says solar coaster question mark <laughs> I love it. Oh man. Uh don't, don't let it, don't let your assets trend towards the on the same line as our industry. That's a blue point t shirt right there.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I mean and it's not meant to be pessimistic, right? But um I think that I've spoken to people that do O&M, right? That they get maybe their O&M contract because they're an EPC and they Mm. locked in for a number of years and they go like, oh, well, you know, the prices out there are crazy, crazy. I don't know how people do it, how they can make money this way. And I say to them, you don't know how they can make money at those prices. You know, if you don't know that, then you probably should get out of the market really right. fast because this is not a place for you. And it's a really mm. m- maybe negative message. But really, I try to say it in a positive way. We continue. We have to work hard to be smarter and better. And there's a lot of fluff in our industry. In many respects, it's still a little bit much like a cottage industry. And I, I know we jointly can do better. And, and I know there are a lot of people trying super hard. And I know we'll get there um but just sit there and go like oh i'm at the bottom of the roller coaster let's just wait until it goes back up mm, not so good strategy i would say
0: yeah i would love to hear Ed, may i imagine uh, i haven't met a ceo yet who doesn't read extensively uh if you were to gift yourself as a recent college grad a book what book would you give yourself
1: i don't know because i think that um at every point in your life, there's a book that's going to be resounding to the particular situation that you're in. And so I find that books that I read when I was 25, I don't actually find that interesting anymore. And there's other books that I find interesting now. I think it's just changes over time. So I'm I'm not sure I would have recommendation for one specific book.
0: Fair fair enough. Uh, Fair enough. Well, is there... Is there a book that, that that has particularly shaped or influenced the way that you think about business or does it all sort of blend together?
1: Mm, to be honest, I find most business books pretty superficial.
0: Hmm. Um, I'll, put, I'll put business books on the hot or not list next time. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah,
1: you know, I start reading them and I, I find them usually pretty, yeah. Superficial, because yeah. you know, some kind of famous guy, and he says, you know, this is what I did, and it may have worked out at that time for him
0: very well. Well, Ed May, what habit or consistent practices had the greatest impact on your life or work?
1: Well, I wish I could say like, ooh, the practices of the seven practices of the successful CEO, but I'm <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't. We're we're all about being grounded here and, and speaking from experience and 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 things. Uh, it, it does. There's no right answer to this, so uh, I'm I'm looking more for if there's really what we're looking for is uh, insight into the way that different folks handle growing a business. And if there is something that you think has particularly contributed to your success, what do you what would that be?
1: Well, in many respects, the job that I have right now is for me is my perfect job. I just love it, and and I love it because it brings together a lot of different things that I like doing. You know, I like solar. I, I am passionate about renewable energies. I like finance, you know, I had my early, my first 10 years of my career were about finance and I, I really like it. Um, I also, you know, I didn't study technology, but it's, it's always been a big hobby of mine. I've been programming since I was 15 and I just love it. Wow. And so for the first time, this is a job that brings it all together. And I look, love traveling, so um, I get to travel a lot. I am often in the US, I'm in Japan, I'm all over Europe. Um, so I think that makes me successful because I just love what I do. Yeah, I don't even think about, in the morning I have to get up and I have to do this. And obviously there are always tasks that are less attractive than others, but in general... I really love what I do and, and I think that that helps the second thing is and maybe it's maybe a personal thing but I find that people in the solar industry are really cool people in general You know, and I've seen other industries but people are generally very very nice very you know people like SPI you know you go to parties and hmm. you meet people and a lot of people have become friends and it just makes life and, and, and work so much easier if you work with people that you like. Um, lastly, in terms of habits, it doesn't come natural. Um, but I've tried to, and I, I read that somewhere, and it kind of works for me. I try to organize my work in my weekend blocks Um, where you know I have a sales day and I have a marketing day and I have a product development day and it never really works that way Mm -hmm. (laughs) because it always gets shaken up but for me it helps because um, I'm a very creative person and so I sometimes have a hard time focusing because I have so many great ideas and I'm a little bit all over the place to say no you know today is my marketing day and that's what I'm going to do and these are my whatever marketing tasks um, to to keep me focused because as this CEO, there's so many things that you need to do and you have to be focused because otherwise you're not going to be successful. So that little routine, if you will, helps me, um, to, to be more focused.
0: If I can reflect back to you, what I heard you say, and I love it is love what you do, work with people you like and batch your work and so that you can organize your, your workflow. And that is, right. uh, that is wonderful. Uh, yeah I, I find that the uh, the whole idea of batching and uh, organizing in blocks uh, for me goes back to you know there's a lot of things you can learn from agile development you mentioned that you're uh, you've been developing since you were 15 coding and um, the the community of software developers these days they they cordon off this idea of a maker day right and <laughs> hold it sacred mm-hmm. and I feel like Uh, the the sales and marketing teams of the world really should hold this as an opportunity where you can say, hey guys, sorry for the half for for the either for all of the day on Wednesday or for the first half of the day on Tuesday, uh, I'm in my maker mode and I'm only focused on you know this task and I don't take phone calls or meetings and I find far too few folks uh, listen to the advice from you and other executives, which is block off your schedule, leave time for thinking, leave time for working on specific tasks in a batch that is similar so that you can be effective and not distracted by all of the inbound inputs i like that right yeah yes Ed may where can people find you how could they interact with you what's the easiest way to get your attention
1: um well LinkedIn is good or Twitter. Uh, in both cases my handle is just Edme Kelsey, mm-hmm. no dots, no nothing. Um
0: Kelsey or uh, K-E-L-S-E-Y. And that's with two E's. I'll link to I'll link to all of this of course on in the blog page.
1: Yeah, no, great. So my handle is the same for uh-huh. Twitter and for LinkedIn. Um or otherwise by our web page, uh, 3megawatt.com. Mm-hmm.
0: And that's three with, um, the, with the, the word or both ways? give it.
1: No three as in the number, the
0: number three. Okay. Number three, yeah. And then megawatt spelled out. Yeah. All right. .com. And how can the Suncast audience help you? If you had one ask, how how can we, as a as a group of listeners who have now had an hour of, of intimate time with you, how can we help you move forward or, or what, what ask might you have of us?
1: You know, subscribing to um, to my Twitter feed would be great or, or LinkedIn. We're always looking for talented interns. Mm. So if you want to know how solar asset management works and you like to come to Germany and drink beer. There you go. It's Oktoberfest right now. Perfect timing. Yep. Tell me about Perfect it. Perfect timing. This sounds like
0: the best internship in the industry right here. <laughs> go spend some time well, in Bavaria.
1: Yeah, you have to get your later hosen though, because uh. otherwise it won't work. But um, no, um, I think the other thing that I would ask people just to be, you know, stick with solar. Mm. I mean, I, I see it can be discouraging at times, but I think together we're gonna get there. I really do. And and coming back to my earlier comments, there are gonna be temporary setbacks. Mm. But there's so many different business models that it it, it makes me think back um, to the days where maybe you just had Dell and you had HP and, you know, the days when the internet first came up. I think that's what people will look at the uh, solar industry now when they look back. I mean, even when I look back at Main Street Power, we had like... Um, you know 50 megawatt and that was huge at the time mm. and now i'm looking at a client that has 50 megawatt and i go like, well you know it's not a very big client i mean within five years everything has changed and you know you took go five years further and everything will change again so uh, i think we need everybody to chip in and figure out you know how we how we beat
0: the fossil fuels I love it. how can we do it well let's and, and we will yeah well as a perfect way to end i always ask what i what i call a bold prediction let's end today with a bold prediction edme what one thing do you see happening in the future perhaps nobody else is tracking what's in your crystal ball three five ten years out
1: well i think the whole energy market is gonna change a lot mm-hmm. um you have I think the dynamic, and and we talked about it earlier, between utilities, and and the new IPPs, is a, it's an uneasy one, um, and what will will be in the benefit of the consumer, though, um, where I think energy will get cheaper and cheaper. Um, I've always said, coming back to the analogy of the telecoms industry, where what was it like 15 20 years ago you paid per minute and now you just pay for 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 your capacity for your bandwidth i could see the same happening for energy where you say well i'm i'm not paying per kilowatt hour but i'm paying for standby capacity i want like you know the the ability to with to draw i don't know 2000 watts uh four thousand watts, and that's what I'm paying for. Whether I'm going to use it or not, that's going to be my decision. So that standby capacity is is a very different one than your kilowatt hours, right? In it's the same thing as I got. Like, well, on the internet, um, I get you know so much megabyte per second upload or download speed. Um, then when I take Skype, it says, oh, no emergency calls. Well, it will be the same for the power industry. When I have, uh, maybe I don't pay anything for my kilowatt hours. I just pay for my standby capacity. Maybe I cannot expect that it's going to be there. Maybe there are no emergency calls. Wow. You know, if I want to have my, my cheapest my cheapest tariff, then you know what? Maybe I cannot run my washing machine and a microwave at the same time. But that's what I chose. And that's what I'm okay with. Because I did that because it's a cheaper tariff and I'm fine with it. And I think that that's maybe a bold prediction. I've seen it in, in the telecoms industry before where you just, maybe you just have a flat rate. Mm. You know, That's how much I have a month regardless of how much I use. But I cannot make emergency calls. I cannot run my microwave and my TV and my dishwasher all day
0: concurrently at the same time ah, doesn't work. fascinating i love this line of thinking Yet, i look forward to having uh, obviously lots of other conversations with you online and offline look forward to seeing you at the next event and i thank you again for spending this time with us for sharing from your deep well of experience and i hope that we can have you back on the show
1: yeah it was fun thank you so much for inviting me it was a great opportunity to speak and uh, looking forward to the next one
0: That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.